Welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Sangdoi, an educator from Kachin State and a dear friend of ours. Growing up in a very remote area, Sang understood the importance of education. At the age of 15, she left her hometown to further her studies, but as she moved around Myanmar, she realized that equal educational opportunities were hard to find. As well as a passion for equality in education, she had a great desire to learn English and explore the wider world, but with limited financial means, her journey would not be an easy one. In 2019, after countless setbacks, incredible resilience and hard work, her dreams finally came true and she moved to Melbourne, Australia to study. But being so far away from home when the coup broke out had a devastating impact on Sang. Here she talks about what it is like to be so far away from home, the worries and concerns many Myanmar citizens, particularly students, face who are caught outside the country, especially those with expiring visas, and the constant worry they feel for their families back in Myanmar. Let's start the conversation. Seng, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, Seng is one of our oldest friends from Myanmar. And yeah, tell people, I want everyone to get to know you. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Seng. Oh, sure. Thanks for um, doing this, Susan and Ruth. So uh, as you know, my name is Seng, and I am originally from the northern part of uh, Myanmar, Kachin State. And uh, I would say, although I'm from the northern part, I have been like living, you know, away from my home since I was like really young, like I would say about 15. And like I studied, I did my university in Mandalay. So that was kind of the first big move that I did when I was young, like, you know, living away from the culture or like uh, the society, the community that is very different, you know, in terms of the tradition and even uh, language. So that was my uh, first move. And then after that, I moved to Yangon and with the dream of like, you know, studying uh, abroad and learning English and with all those dreams that I think a lot of young people have, especially in Myanmar back then. It was, yeah, 2011 when things just started, you know, opening up and in terms of opportunities, whether that's education or jobs. Um, there's more in the city than in the remote area. So that was kind of the move that I made. And yeah, like living in Yangon for about, you know, seven, eight years, I learned English. And at the same time, I was also working at a school where uh, I would say I was fortunate, like, you know, to be able to work as a teacher, uh, an English teacher where I can teach and also learn at the same time. And yeah, I prepared to study abroad. And then currently I am in Melbourne, Australia. And yeah, that's kind of like a bit of my background. So I would say for me, like growing up in a very remote area, and I know that like the importance of education. And also, you know, as I moved from place to place, I can see that there's no equal opportunities in terms of that. So I think for me, education is one of the passions that I really have. And even for me, through education is, yeah, I can see things like more differently and being able to have different perspective. So yeah, that's pretty much about who I am. So 
for me, I would say um, I arrived here in 2019. And um, in the first year, so like for those who have like a lot of financial uh, security, it is easy to study abroad. Like if your family can support you, that's great. But I think for me, it's like kind of a different journey. So um, maybe Suzanne, I also mentioned you, you know, when we were working together, how I went to study abroad and I was also preparing for it. And I applied for different scholarships, but I didn't get, you know, any. And at the end, like every year I applied, but I always got rejected. So I was like, okay, if I don't get a scholarship, what are other ways that I can, you know, go and study? And that's when I started kind of like work harder, like more hours and kind of like save as much as I could. And yeah, finally I got here. I chose kind of the school that I feel like I can afford. And also, of course, in the beginning, I, yeah, asked some help from my family, my relatives. And I arrived in Melbourne, like in May 2019. So the first year was kind of like tough in terms of, you know, adjusting to a new culture. Although I have some um, background, like communicating with people from different culture, but it was a new thing. But yeah, after about six months, and that's when COVID hit. And even for me, all my studies went like online. And there's also another uh, journey of, you know, figuring out like when you are always dreaming about going to the campus. So that was, I would say, a lot of struggles in the first year. And yeah, by the time I felt like I was home, I felt like, okay, now it is time to relax. And that's when, you know, the coup happened. So that was like in yeah February. And I remember that was the time when like I raised some money for my birthday, like because I wanted to uh, help, you know, the school because of COVID, the schools were also closed. And I was like, I heard from my sister that there is one school that's really struggling. And I was like, okay, I've never done this before, but I, you know, wanted to raise some money to help them for like their food. And yeah, even Ruth, you, you know, uh, contributed uh, some to uh, that course. And I was like, trying to send that money and the day that we transfer the money is the day, like the first of February. And I was like, oh, shoot, it's not even my money, you know? <laughs> and I was like, what? At first, like, I didn't hear the news. I wasn't looking at the Facebook. And one of my friends called me like from Australia. And then he said, like, hey, did you check the news? And I said, like, what? What news? And he said, check. And then, like, they sent me the link about the BBC news, I remember. The moment I look at the news and I think I just feel like, I feel like so empty, you know, like at that moment I was like, no, it can't be. Maybe is it like, you know, fake news or, and then I look at the news, but it is like BBC and I look at the URL and then no, this is legit. So, and then I try to communicate. I try to contact my family and then like, there's no internet, no nothing. I even tried like using Skype to call, but there was like no contact. And that moment I kind of felt like, okay, this is real. Like, you know, it's not joking. Like it's not a joke. And yeah, I think after a few hours, about six hours later, that's the first time that I got some, I asked my friends that, Hey, I had this. Is it, is it true? And from friends from Yangon, friends from my hometown, and even my sister, my everyone. And then later, I got the confirmation. And 
I think I just like broke down. I, I was like cried. And at that moment, I feel like my dreams, my futures just like kind of, you know, crashed. Like there is complete darkness. And the first like few days, the first few months was just like that. And I feel like I didn't want to do anything. I was so depressed. Like sometimes I would cry and like later on, but one thing uh, I would say I was um, fortunate or like, I'm so grateful. One thing that I'm so grateful for is that here in Australia, in terms of the international students um, support system, there is a place called study because I'm in Victoria. So Melbourne and there is a government organization called study Melbourne. So they support students and Although sometimes, you know, the support might not be like that great, but I think like for me, I was just seeking help, even if I want to call the lifeline or I can, you know, call them and just talk to them, everything. And because of that, I kind of like later on after two, yeah, after a month, I would say, I gradually kind of realized that, okay, that is one thing that I cannot control, you know, like. The moment I look at my phone, my phone is just full of all these images, like people crying, people dying and all this blood. And, you know, for me, I would say that is not something that I'm not used to because coming from uh, Guchin State, I grew up with that. But seeing that is another level. Like it was, yeah, I think it was so different. And then as especially seeing some of the footage from Yangon and even some of the street where I used to live, like it just kind of like, it really stirred my emotion. But yeah, like I said, because of the support that I got from this community, I was later on kind of like um, being able to shift my focus from uh, something that I cannot control to, you know, kind of like, okay, what can I do, you know, in this case? And um, since then, I started to look for volunteer opportunities, like, because if I don't do anything, I know that it's like, it won't be, you know, good for me. So I luckily got an, um, a volunteer position where I go to the place and we serve the food to the visitor. So mainly it's uh, international student. So they would come to this place and yeah, we just, you know, talk to each other, communicate with each other. Because even in Australia, because of the COVID, everything was like locked down. And especially Victoria, in Victoria, the state that I'm in, everything was locked down. So some students who just arrived and then like just before lockdown, like they have never, you know, they were never uh, being able to go out of their place. So it was a great time for me just to, you know, serve people. And then I think gradually I kind of shift my um, focus to that. And uh, I was also contacting during that time, I was talking to some of my friends from Myanmar who are also studying here and some uh, with the scholarship program. It's called the AusAid program. So for them, the Australian organization, kind of like the Australian government just support them. So they study and then, but with the condition that after your study, you have to go back, you have to go home and then, you know, serve the community. And I think in the beginning, when I was like talking to them and like, they were also, one of my friends was going to finish her study very soon. 
but according to the condition, like you have to go back. But because of COVID, there is also no flight. And also in terms of the safety as well, we were not just sure, like, you know, is it okay to go back? And yes, okay, if we go back, what would happen? And especially for some of my friends who are very active on, you know, on their social media, it kind of really worries, you know, us as well. So there was this certainty and then uncertainty. And I was also talking to another friend. She worked at Yangon YUFL, Yangon Foreign Language University. So she's a government staff. So for the government staff, then they have, even when they go and study abroad, passport is different from like the normal uh, citizen. So they have a special one. And then even for them, they were forced to sign like another friend, she, that government staff. So for her, she did a CDM. And then later on, she got a letter from the embassy saying that, you know, you have to confirm that you are not doing a CDM. And then if you don't sign it, then that, you know, they kind of threaten her. So it's not just her, but those who are from the government, you know, organization, and then like they are with that kind of like scholarship program, they have a different issues. And I was, I was so shocked when I found out. And even until now, some of my friends, they still can't go back to Myanmar. And for me, luckily, my visa is still valid with my study. And because I came on my own, so there's no condition. So which kind of give me some freedom, uh, you know, to decide, let's say, after I finish my study in a year or two. Uh, but for my friends, like, I don't even know how they are going to continue, like, you know, to, uh, moving forwards. And as I talk to other uh, Myanmar students in Australia, I've found that uh, there are a lot of problems. For example, some people, their passport is going to expire. And then like with the passport, you have to renew like before six months, you know, expiry of your passport. And then we also like, okay, so is it okay to, you know, go to Canberra or even because of the COVID, we can't go, but by even renewing your passport, that issue. So there was a lot of issue even for those who are away. And I was like, I don't know how. And then I felt like sometimes we don't have anyone to talk to. But recently there was a, um, a program by NUG and they kind of, they were, I think like for them also, they are trying to understand, especially for those uh, Myanmar students who are in other countries and kind of the problems that they are facing. So they wanted to understand and maybe come up with the solution. But that was the first initial stage. So a lot of people mentioned about their visa problem, their passport, and even for some people, it's expired, but they don't know what to do and they can't go back. So by hearing this, uh, in a way, I was like, maybe my problem is not that big compared to others, you know? So I was, I would say I was kind of like relieved in a way, but I think there was a moment when I felt like, um, you know, when all these chaos, all these things happen, I was not in Myanmar and it kind of made me feel guilty for, you know, like just for being away and like not being able to be there when things happen. And at first I thought it was just me, but as I talked to other friends and people, 
And I realized that it was not just me. And it's kind of like the survival, like guilt, I think. So yeah, for a long time, I had to uh, live with that. But I think for me now, I'm just going to take the opportunity that I have so that I can, you know, in a way, give back to like my community in terms of, for me, I would say uh, education is one thing that I really value. So that is what I have been yeah, working on. Could you explain a bit about Beyond Borders? I've seen some things about that. Could you explain to me what that one is? Okay, so that Knowledge Beyond Border is so part of the initiative that we are doing uh, in Australia as part of international student. So Australia is in terms of the international students, it's such a diverse, you know, and then international education is really a big economy, I would say, for, you know, Australia. So in terms of that, and that's why even for Australian government, they also support um, international students in, you know, various forms. And as one of the project, what we have to do is we have to form a group and then to work on one of the UN um, sustainable development goals. And yeah, and then for our group, we decided to work on um, quality education. And even in quality educations, we wanted to focus on target 4.4 and 4.6, which is ICT skills and literacy skills. So I think like, the forming of that uh, knowledge beyond border was in the beginning. Uh, for me, my mom is illiterate. Like my mom doesn't know how to write. And for my dad, he kind of like finished his um, sixth grade. But I think for me, my mom has such a positive like influence, although she is not illiterate. Like she, in terms of the way she managed our family is like her leadership always like, inspires me. And she raised like seven of us. And like, I'm just like mind blown. But I thought, well, you know, even in this age, there are a lot of people who are still like, who cannot read, write. And we wanted to do something, especially like encouraging, you know, people to be able to, you know, learn what they want to learn, especially with this age, with the help of internet, which is possible no matter where you are. And I think uh, COVID has also proven that. but. One thing that I find is even in Myanmar, a lot of young people, when we talk about internet, what we see is like Facebook and, you know, in terms of the ICT skills for the public school, we never get to learn, you know, how to use computer. Only those who can afford will be able to go and go and study a little bit, like paying extra for computer class. So in terms of, you know, ICT skills and all this uh, digital uh, literacy is very far behind. So uh, with a dream of, you know, making knowledge more accessible, like beyond uh, the borders, I mean, wherever you are, whether that could be the physical borders between countries or, you know, the invisible like socioeconomy, like all these things, at least if we have more exposure, then for our young people as well, they will be able to explore more about what they want to do. So that is kind of the main idea behind Knowledge Beyond Borders. And yeah, in our team, we have seven members. We have uh, one from Vietnam, one from Thailand, um, from Myanmar is me and another friend of uh, mine. And also from Nepal, 
and uh, Chile and uh, one French guy. So it's such a diverse, yeah, individuals, but it's kind of like the beginning stage of like forming this group. And I think for us, we also want to understand like, because especially for us, although now we are in Australia and we can still continue, you know, our education through like remote learning, but there are a lot of people who cannot do that because of maybe a lack of internet uh, access or maybe lack of, you know, being able to access all these technology. So that's why we want to do, you know, something, you know, to give back to our country or our community. So that's the reason behind that. Um, in terms of your own education in Kachin, and you said you left when you were 15 to go to Yangon, was that after having gone through the education system in Kachin? And I also wondered, like, what's happening now in terms of education in, in Kachin in comparison to the opportunities that you had then? And what impact has the coup had on education there now, if you know? Okay, so I think for me, uh, yeah, I finished the system of the high school, which is like grade 10. And for me, I passed all the high school. And then when you pass the high school, then, you know, you get to go to the university. So that's what I did. But in terms of the education, I would say currently, or even since 2011. So uh, I'm sure you might have also heard about the 2011, this, uh, you know, Kachin civil war, war broke out between the military and the KIA. So since 2011, the situation and I was just also looking at some of the data and according to the United Nations like Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, they said there's like over like 1 million people has been displaced since 2011. And now let's think about it. In 2011 and now it's 2021, so it's 10 years, a decade, and there are like kids, they can't get education. So there's kind of a generation of like people who just miss out all this education because of, you know, all this. But back then, of course, the media doesn't really cover, like there is also the bias in terms of, you know, reporting this. In terms of being able to access the education is like, I would say for like Kachin, I can speak out for this because I'm from there and I know the real situation. So since then it was like, it's gone downhill. But for Kachin State, I think like even when I was young, in terms of like uh, majority of people are like Christian and there's a lot of churches. And then sometimes the church is where you learn even your language. For example, like I'm Gachin. So we don't get to learn Gachin in school. So we speak Gachin, we write in Gachin, but that's because we learn at church. And then at school, we have to communicate in Burmese and like learn, you know, Burmese. And that's kind of like a separate, you know, thing. And I think for me, even when I was young, I really struggled like to speak in Burmese. And sometimes people kind of make fun of your accent, like, oh, and then they would make fun of uh, me. And when I was young, I was like so embarrassed of that. But now I think I'm so proud of, you know, me being able to speak my language. But if my accent is not, you know, up to the standard, then I don't care because I can communicate. So that's one thing. So currently with COVID as well, because the school, since the COVID started, most of the school like closed and those who can afford will be able to do like maybe private tutoring or, you know, through that kind of uh, resource, they, there are people who can do it. But I would say 
mostly even for my brother, right? He's in his um, high school, but because of COVID, he can't continue. There's no, so it's kind of a pause and we don't know when it will, you know, open again. And my sister is, um, she studies psychology and she's in her final year, but you know, now we don't know what's going to happen. And yeah, I would say in terms of schools, everything is closed and yeah, it's a worry. I would say like really, really, um, in terms of this, uh, education, I really worry about that. And people are like, as you say, like with your sister, like she's due to finish university. There's so many people who are not going to get their degrees after working for so hard for years in their fields or people who are just about to get their master's education. And and they're just some of them will never get that now. I mean, I, I mean, I'm hoping that maybe NUG has a plan for these people because they deserve to get their recognition. But their education is their ticket out of the country or even to a job or to their futures. And, and they've all kind of been robbed of it as well which is a secondary effect of the coup that the universities have shut, the schools have shut. I've heard that the, you know, some schools are operating online, but as you say, that's, that's not accessible for the majority of the country. So yeah, it is a real, a real worry actually when you say it like that. So in terms then saying of yourself and the students in Australia, we know they got this letter as we heard about it, you know, saying that they had to sign to say they were not participating in CDM or speaking out against the coup. And did most people sign that letter? Like from the friends that I've spoken to, like my friends, they said they didn't sign it. So that's why. But of course, maybe there might be people who uh, have signed it, you know, because they are also worried about their security. But some of my friends, the friends that I um, talked to, they said they they didn't. So, yeah, I in terms of, you know, what's going to happen, I I don't actually know. And right now, I assume that anyone who should have left by now is allowed to stay because of COVID, like as in there's no way to leave right now. So there's kind of like an amnesty, I guess, of sorts. But obviously, when that gets lifted, are they all going to be put on a flight back to Yangon? I mean, is that their worry? I mean, Um, yeah, recently, I've just spoken to a friend of mine who comes with that scholarship program, and she just completed her master's in community development. And then so... Yes, she was supposed to go back, but because of the COVID, yeah, she can't go back and there's no flight. So what the Australian government has done is kind of extend her visa for like three months. So it's not just her, but like those who um uh, in her cohort, I heard like they are in the similar boat, but they gave like only three months. And once that three months and I like, let's see if the situation gets better, then they might be able to go back or like they only give three months and three months. So that's why uh, for them, even if they want to work, you know, they can't because of that visa limitation. Yeah. And that must be so stressful every three months, you know, not knowing what's happening next. And as you say, not even being able to get a job and afford to stay there. I mean, yeah, it's not good. And I'm glad the NUG has met with students because I know the same thing happened in the UK just last week. They met with students to find out what their issues were to try and help. But something really needs to be done there to help the students. Um, so it would be great if Australia did something and just allowed the students to stay. So maybe if anyone is listening and they could put pressure on their their MPs and their government officials in Australia um, to support the students on this one. Because I, I think it really is, it's horrible for them. I, I imagine like even just wondering how they're going to pay rent, how they're going to feed themselves on top of worrying about their family back home. You know, we do forget that people are suffering outside the country, you know, um, as well. And it's affecting everybody. I'm just thinking as well, saying that 
I mean, listening to you talking about the emotions you've been going through from when you heard about the coup and then, you know, trying to kind of pick yourself back up and keep going. And then COVID hit really bad in Myanmar. So I imagine that just when you were kind of finding a way to go again, that kind of devastating news hit. And and as you said, most of your family got COVID. Is that right? Yeah. Like the time when I got the news about my mom, you know, being sick, I was like, oh, no. You know, and then you just kind of like hope for the best. Like, please, please, like, you know, mom, like recover soon. Like, I don't want to worry. And especially I think that moment was like, because, yeah, for me, the last time I saw my mom and dad was uh, before I come here. So that was in yeah May 2019. And, you know, uh, I know that you also know that feeling when you're away, you know, from your family and that just feeling it was really, really stressful. And then like for my mom, I think in the beginning, what happened was when someone, especially I think uh, this is just uh, my personal view. So people might not, uh, you know, agree or disagree. I don't know. So one thing is that when something, let's say someone has a COVID or even if you get tested positive, like people look at you like, oh, you have a COVID and you know, that kind of things going on. So like some people, instead of, you know, encouraging each other and supporting each other, like there was something going on, you know, even within the community in the beginning, like when the COVID starting to hit like in Myanmar, I think that's what I can observe. And so when my mom said she felt like uh, she has lost her smell. So we were like, okay, mom, you have to get tested or you have to go. And well, from what I have heard, like they have a testing kit. And then like, for me, I don't know how accurate that is and, you know, how reliable that is. But I think with that, and at first my mom kind of like refused, like my mom said, I don't want to get tested. And I think also I understand, you know, especially when COVID is such a new thing. And of course, nobody want to get tested, like we're positive for COVID. So maybe, especially you don't want to be the first in the family, like who brought that COVID or not in the family or not even in your community. But when like by my what my mom described about her symptoms, we were my sister and we were quite sure that it's like COVID. But in our you know community, in our family, uh, it's a big family. And, you know, it's not just our family. Usually we live in a house where there are at least five or, you know, six people. And in that kind of family, it's really hard to isolate yourself. So I think that was the biggest challenge. And when my mom started to get sick and then so my brother has to, you know, like take care of, like let's say, cooking and everything. And then after my mom got like recovered, then as my dad and, then, you know, and then my brother. So it was just like one after another, like within our family. But yeah, at that time, I think I kind of in the beginning, I didn't post anything because I, you know, just looking at the news and it was really sad, you know, for, for some people, you know, you just, at first you recovered and then later you found the news that, you know, that person passed away. And so even when I heard the news that, okay, now they said it's tested negative, then I can't like, it was really hard to relax because you have seen other news that, okay, no, you know, you can't really say that it is gone. So 
Yeah, I think that moment was like really, really the hardest, I would say, for me. But um, yeah, later on, I I would say I was kind of, I kept calling them. And then I, I kept checking in like, how are you doing? But because my mom and dad, they don't, they don't have social media. So it was really hard to, in order to talk to them, I have to call my brother and I have to check. Is it okay if like, can you give your phone to mom? <laughs> and then sometimes I would just use Skype and then like call, you know, directly to their phone. So yeah, that was kind of like a huge roller coaster ride for me. But I am thankful that they are all okay now. <laughs> In terms of access to healthcare for your parents, is there any any system that has been established because of COVID or anything like that? So when the COVID cases started to rise in, you know, in our community, I heard that there was uh, for our church as well, they kind of transformed the church, the hall into testing area. So, and then like they kind of, um, you know, call for any health workers and even within our community, there are, you know, nurses and doctors who are CDM and then, you know, they don't have any job. But, you know, they kind of give back to their community and they kind of volunteer. And I think that was one of the way that they coped. And it was not just our church, I heard. There are also other churches that kind of do, you know, similar way. And yeah, for like whoever has such skills, they would, you know, volunteer. And even like youths and whether that's cleaning or, you know, maybe um, distributing the food or yeah, that was how they kept going. In some church, they have the IDP camps because of the effect of, you know, all these uh, internally displaced peoples because they cannot go back to uh, the, uh, you know, village because of the conflict, all the shooting. Then some church has built, you know, like give them a place to stay. So in that kind of community, it's easier to, you know, get infected. Like it's easy to spread the, the COVID, like it spread more. So there was, I heard like there was a time where even, you know, happened in like that kind of area, I would say. Yeah. But I think one thing was people, they give back to, you know, their willingness to serve for their community was what kept them really going and they got on top of it. And they even bought the oxygen machine. (laughs) Yeah. And they raised money and, you know, so those who can contribute, whether they are in, you know, in the country or abroad, they, yeah, you contribute whatever amount you can because of all the hospital are closed. So you can't even go to hospital. And I remember my sister, my eldest sister, she was pregnant with her third child. And then it was like, you know, during all these things, I was like, how is going to work out? You know? <laughs> yeah. You've got the fear of the COVID and you've also got CDN. So it's just like, oh my God, like massive added stress factor. Yeah. And mm. forget that like life goes on, even when there's a coup and there's COVID, like everything that's happening in everyone else's life in the world is still happening in Myanmar. People are pregnant, people are having babies, you know, all of these things like that. Yeah, we, we forget that sometimes. Um, vaccinations was going to be my next question saying because I know quite a lot of people that we used to work with have been vaccinated but I think the schools organized it and like even I saw in Al Jazeera news it was almost like a pro-military kind of segment where they said that they're rolling out this vaccination 
is that even a possibility in Kachin? Is this reaching you know other states, or is it more that this is something they're pulling out in Yangon to to get that news out? Um, from what I've heard, like recently, is I actually like didn't hear a lot of vaccination going on. Like even in our family, I think my mom said she has got the first dose, and I asked her like which one, but she said she doesn't know. <laughs> so it's but I don't know in terms of you know the vaccination rolling out how it's going. But I heard that for those who work for non-government organization like. For example, UN or those NGOs, INGOs, there is a system going on for, you know, their stuff. But for the just uh, normal citizen, I, I don't think there is much going on. So that will be uh, not just only for, you know, Kachin, but I think for almost every remote area would be the same. Yeah, I think some of the ethnic armed groups and their like medical people are distributing in, in IDP camps or it's slowly coming through from what I've read. So maybe we'll, we'll see more of that. Um, I'm just thinking, Sen, because I always knew that you wanted to obviously pursue your education and your goal was always to go back to your country to help like that. Like I know a lot of people go away and they never come back or did what your goal was always to get the knowledge and skills you needed to come back and help. So obviously this coup has put a a spanner in the work, so to say. Um, so I guess, is that still your dream? Or are you realizing that that might not be possible unless the coup or the military can be outed? What What are your thoughts on your future? Um, yeah, I think like for me, you know, when when I think about even, I always think about going back to, you know, uh, my country and building a school, library. That was one of my my dreams. But I would say, though, before I, you know, before I um, get out of Myanmar, there was one things I would say is kind of like a bitter feeling that I had. What I was seeing is that in terms of the law enforcement and even for, you know, in terms of law enforcement for protecting Myanmar citizens, there was a big kind of gap in terms of whether that's labor or whether, you know, working. In terms of the salary difference for, you know, maybe you might also have, you know, seen by yourself, even for us working at the international school, when you are a local, like the pay that you get is like really low, but there's that system. And, you know, I think for me, I really wanted to fight that, but I didn't know how. And so in my mind, I was like, okay, when I come back, I would have the same salary as like, it doesn't matter if, you know, you are foreigner or like just because you are uh, outsider, you get more. Like, I don't like that system. And I feel like that was a really, really kind of like a grudge, I would say. So that's one of the things that I wanted to fight for. But now because of the COVID and also because of the coup, I am realizing that what can I do if I'm, you know, in the country or like what can I do if I'm outside of the country so that is one thing that I'm kind of like weighing out so if you know just by going back and if I can't do anything then is it like worth going back now or should I wait a bit more and just you know like do things from outside so I would say in terms of that question for now I want to you know do as many things as I can from outside but I always have a dream of like going back. So I'll definitely go back. 
No, it's just interesting when you say about the gap in terms of pay. And that's something that obviously we did witness. And, you know, there is even a, a kind of uneasiness with us knowing what we're getting paid versus local staff. And and even just like and, and not just in Myanmar, because I, I mean, I worked in China and it was the same. And, you know, it was the exact same. You know, the foreign teachers were paid so much more than than the local teachers. But even the attitude towards the teachers, like I remember it, <laughs> being in China and a parent complaining that a Chinese teacher was teaching their kid. I'm like, yeah, when I thought you are Chinese yourself, like you are being racist towards your own <laughs> like people, you know, like this teacher was a brilliant maths teacher, you know, the best that we had. And they were a Chinese teacher, but the parent wanted, you know, a Western teacher. But the Western teacher is not as good at maths as this guy. Like, it's just. I guess there's been so much investment telling people that the Western education, Western education, and there's like this prestige attached to it. But like a brilliant teacher is a brilliant teacher, regardless of their skin color, regardless of where they come from. And it's really it's going to take a long time to change that perception, I think, uh, across Asia, definitely. But uh, I hope it does, because it, there should be equal pay for equal work, you know, no matter where you come from. I think also you could say that the school could have done that. It didn't. It wasn't legally obligated by the law of Myanmar to pay local staff less they were enforcing and buying into that they could have made a change they could have been the change as could any other institution that employs local and foreigners like they could do that they just don't want to because it's going to make them lose money so yeah there's accountability there that goes far beyond well the change could come from within do you know what I mean the other thing I was going to ask when you were talking about like the embassy in Australia and your friend getting the letters about the CDM and Suzanne was saying like that they've not extended the time. It sounds to me like your embassy's kind of not on your guy's side. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're you know, pro-Tamador, pro-Junta embassy. How vulnerable does that make you feel in, in Australia? Do, do you feel like they've got an influence in terms of, can they, like Suzanne's talking about extending the visas and, and the Australian government doing that. If your embassy's not on your side, then surely your embassy's not, pushing for that either and that's just a complete confliction in terms of your security within the country and I just wondered how vulnerable that made you feel oh yeah like for me you know when I heard about this and the first thing I did is I checked on the Myanmar embassies uh, here in Australia in Canberra but their social is not that active like even their website when you go to the website the information that you get is like from about 2020 and like before the coup. So, and in a way that kind of gives you, you know, like who are like behind that. So of course it does make me feel like vulnerable. And I always like keep looking at my passport, like when it's going to expire. And then like, should I do this now? Or should I renew it now? Or what? Yeah, it really scares me. <laughs> Honestly speaking, it really scares me. But I think um when it is the time, then of course I don't also want to be you know, um, illegally staying here. So it means I also have to uh, live, you know, to abide by the law, like the Australian law of staying here. So yeah, personally, uh, yeah, I am scared, but I think when it is the right uh, like time to do it, then I would have to do it and see how it goes. Because um, at the moment for the um, NUG as well, they they are also trying to be, you know, like official and the process will take a long time, take a long time. And we don't know when that will be. If that happens, of course, that would be great. Like, you know, if people, um, other countries, other government, if they recognize NUG, 
then it would be great and it would be, it would solve a lot of problem. But we don't know uh, until then, we will just have to play with the current rule. And I assume then saying for some people who have been very active, maybe protesting online, they would be extremely concerned because if they go back, they could be imprisoned, they could be tortured, they could be killed. Who knows what would happen to them? So for those people, and that, that could be anyone because people are going to prison for a Facebook post these days in Myanmar. So we really can't stress how everyone is vulnerable, even if they haven't been really active. So they would have to apply for refugee status. I mean, I assume, which is a huge, long, stressful process. And you can't work, you lose your rights, you can't get education during that process. So like, I, I doubt anyone wants to do that if they can avoid it. But that would be the only other option available, I assume, is to try to apply for refugee status in Australia. Yeah, I heard that like some, um, you know, some people applying and a friend of mine who is in the U.S., for him, like he already started the process. But my friend, when we heard about that, you know, option, for me, honestly, I haven't really looked into that because for my situation, I still have a valid visa. I still, so that is the last thing that I want to worry about. So I, I think maybe I'm just pushing it down the line. Like, but for my friend who just finished and someone was suggesting, like, you know, for her to choose that option, but because for her, she received the scholarship from the government, so she can't do that according to the rule. Or if you want to do that, then you have to pay back all the money that you have been, you know, getting through that scholarship program. And it's a lot of money. So how, how, you know, is she supposed to do that? How can she even afford? And like Suzanne, you said, the process of like, you know, the refugee is like, it's not easy. It's not just like, oh, you can apply for refugee. It's not that easy. You know, it might be just easy to say it, but in the process or also, you know, in that state, in a way you lose your identity and you lose your country. And, you know, it's like nobody wants to lose your identity, you know, no matter how bad your country is, like at least you have a country that you can call home. And some people say that, oh, of course for you, like, you know, you are outside of the country, you can easily apply, but it's not like that. So, yeah, it's really hard. And I think that's something people forget when we talk about, you know, immigration and we talk about migrants and we talk about refugees. There's nobody leaving their country <laughs> because they want to. You know, most people are leaving because they can't get opportunities in their own country or they're being persecuted in their own country or their own country is not safe. But everyone I've ever met who is not in their own country wants to return to their own country one day. I mean, and as you say, if you become a refugee, you, you know, you're losing your country and your identity. So it's not that simple. So it sounds like if the Australian government just, you know, helped the students out and extended their visas, gave them the right to work for, I mean, how many students? I mean, I'm not sure, but I mean, it can't be like that many. It's doable, like allow them to stay for, you know, two to five years. And let's see what Myanmar is in two to five years, you know. I just think it's uh, it's it's very frustrating that the people who have the power to make these decisions are just not making them. These are people's lives. You know, I can only imagine the stress for people in Australia right now whose visas have run out or are running out. I mean, what stress they must be under um, on top of their family suffering back in Myanmar, on top of waiting for a phone call every day. Has somebody died? Has somebody been taken? It's it's horrible. So, yeah. I feel I feel very motivated to write a letter to the Australian government right now. <laughs> That's probably how I'll spend my afternoon. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, about the refugee, like even for me, my uh, some of my friends, they are now like refugee in Canada and whom I still, you know, have contact with. But for them, like my friends, they grew up in the, the border of Thailand and Korean, uh, Myanmar, so in Mezao. And so they grew up even like for their journey. Like I know my friends since uh, 2012. So let's say, yeah, about like 10 years. And even for her to get that refugee, you know, and then to another third country, the process, it takes ages, you know, it takes ages. And then like, let's say, okay, at the end, you become the refugee and then it doesn't finish there because you still have to start your life, like a new one, which, you know, maybe the culture would be completely different and the food is completely different. And even the weather, like, so these are the factors that we, when we talk about, like, we don't really think about that. But actually, when you are in it, there's a lot of factors to really think about. And for me, myself, I've seen it. And I think that is the option that I don't want to go. Are you hopeful, Sang, for Myanmar? Like, we've been watching, like, it's nine months now. It's crazy when you think about it since the coup. And the people have not stopped resisting. Like, every day we see these brave souls out protesting. And everyone is resisting in their own way. Do you think the people can win? I definitely think we can win. It is very sad that it has to be this way, but I would say I am hopeful we will win. And even for uh, those who are like doing CDM and, you know, whatever way they can, like I have full respect for them. And I think this is the time that in a way kind of really unite all of us. You know, of course, in Myanmar, we have such a diverse, you know, in terms of culture and language, there are like more than 135, you know, ethnicity. But I think this is something that, you know, if we can use this catalyst for really change. And I would say I am hopeful and yeah, I, we will definitely win. I hope so. But we, we feel quite hopeful. You know, there's a lot of momentum on the ground. And I mean, I've been reading a lot as well. And I mean, Western commentary is just shocking and so out of touch with the situation on the ground. Um, but from what we're hearing on the ground, it seems very promising. I mean, people are not backing down and they're just not going to accept this. So it's, it's what the military will do next is what I guess we have to wait and see. But yeah, these people are never going to accept military rule ever uh, in Myanmar. So. It's just how long this battle will go on for, I don't know. But in the meantime, it leaves everyone in the country and everyone outside of the country in a state of limbo, unable to kind of make future plans or move forward. Everyone is stuck. As you say, education has frozen in Myanmar for nearly two years now. and We don't know how how much longer. So there's a generation of people who are just not even being educated, have no opportunities. I'm just wondering what what we can do or what people saying, what what can people do who maybe are outside of the country? Uh, what things can they do to help? I think like for those, you know, even for us who are outside of Myanmar, what we can do is like, we also have to be willing to, you know, learn the real situation because sometimes when things are hard, we tend to uh, ignore because of course, sometimes we can't, you know, stand it anymore. I think like for me, when, uh, you know, the news about Afghanistan, like, you know, came out, like, Thing it was on every news out there, but I I'm not sure if yeah, it is okay to say that. But in terms of like what happened to Myanmar, the media coverage is like not even one percent of what you get. But what's happening in Afghanistan is really sad, 
And, you know, it's so sad, but sometimes even, you know, us as an individual human being, we kind of got lost in this political, like, you know, play game. But I think we can be a bit more humane and, you know, having this humanity mindset and to learn more about it and also support in a way that, um, you know, we can. And like, for example, for you guys, you know, uh, you kind of keep this conversation going. And yeah, whatever way we can, whether that is like, if you are someone who has like, you know, a skill of teaching, then there are a lot of, you know, even schools in Myanmar, like community schools, like, I think if we want to make change, there's a way and we can, you know, keep looking for that as well. Saying there, saying about the news in Afghanistan, and it is a good point. And I, and it's not to say Afghanistan shouldn't be on the news; it absolutely should be. But Myanmar should be any country that is being persecuted or suffering in the way in which any Myanmar is should be making the news around the world. And it's not, and it's very, very frustrating. But um, one of the things we've always said with even a podcast like this is that we just need to get people to know about Myanmar and talk about it. So you know, we can do that without the news by every single person talking about it. You know, that's all the news does. It gets the information out there and gets people talking. And if we can do that without mainstream media, then, you know, it's the same end game. Everyone knows what's happening in Myanmar and everyone's putting pressure on their government or everyone is getting involved and helping. As you say, even if it's true, if you've got a skill like you're, you can educate people or you can, you know, make a, you know, an infographic, if you can have a, a, you know, a Facebook post or something that gets the message out there. But also, I guess, donations, like, I mean, Money goes a long way, a little in Myanmar right now. And as even you were saying, like being able to get money to help schools there as well and um, COVID relief, all of that. So, I mean, even if people don't have the time, I mean, I hope they can give some money. You know, there's many people raising money in many different ways and you can support CDM, you can support humanitarian aid, you can support COVID. So, yeah, I guess encouraging people to do that as well. But also, I guess all of you guys abroad who are studying are probably struggling to make ends meet yourselves as well. So I imagine like you guys have limited availability to work. You're studying. It's an expensive, expensive place to be living, Australia. I mean, I visited there and I I thought Ireland was expensive until I went to Australia. Uh, It is crazy. Um, So you guys and then those people whose visas are running out, like and they have no income and no work and they were on scholarships, which is probably ended now. So. How are they going to feed themselves? So there's all of that as well. So I guess in places like Australia, you could be helping students, you know, just the same who were there. But yeah, it's uh, it's overwhelming sometimes when you think about all the different ways it's affecting so many lives. It's yeah. And yeah, like we said, we can keep conversation going. And even for me, when I arrive here and, you know, meeting uh, international students from all over the world, like they would say, okay, you know, where are you from? And I said, Myanmar. And nobody knows where Myanmar is. You know, it's really like, wow. And then at that time, so I have to tell, okay, Myanmar is this. And then like, I even have to, you know, um, tell the situation. So even that is kind of making someone, you know, knows about the situation. So maybe that could be as simple as, you know, telling about Myanmar to other person who doesn't know about Myanmar. Okay, then they might do a bit of research about, you know, Myanmar and just, get to know a bit more um yeah i think like conversation is also really important is there anything else saying that we didn't ask you that you wanted us to ask or that we haven't touched on that maybe you wanted to mention because sometimes that happens people are like damn they didn't ask me that i wanted to say that 
So, like, you know, don't don't let us finish a conversation without you having said everything you, you wanted to. Yeah, I think like for me, you know, when I left Myanmar and like, as you know, I was working in this education uh, as a teacher, but I wanted to explore more about um, IT. And yeah, that was uh, I challenged myself because, you know, especially as a women or even girls, you were you were not encouraged to study such things like science and things. And so when I made the decision, I was like, if I have to start new, like fresh, I will start fresh every day. So at the moment, I'm studying like IT, but I'm really enjoying it. And because I thought like I was done with teaching, but apparently it's not. So I am actually at the moment, I just said yes to one of the school in um like very remote area in Kachin. So, but they, because of COVID as well, their school was closed. So they are doing like Zoom. And then they said, Hey, Sang, can you like, you know, teach us like English and also having, you know, experience of teaching English. And I said, okay, I will commit like, you know, at least one hour a week. That's the least I can do at the moment. So yeah, I'm going to start teaching and which kind of make me feel like I'm also contributing in a way that I can. You know, especially for someone who has passion for education. So I think that's um, what my next step. Yeah, for me, I will always be looking for ways that I can contribute in terms of education and also, you know, keep the conversation going. Thank you for listening to Arnar Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at Arnar Podcast. Spelled A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.